Well, this is the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters, and I am the host, John Moorhead, and today I am privileged uh, to have Dr. Joshua Packard. I've been following his work uh, for a while now. I find it fascinating, and hopefully folks who are listening and watching will as well. Um, Dr. Joshua Packard is the Executive Director of Springtide Research Institute. Uh, Josh, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and to chat. I think this is the briefest bio I have ever used to introduce somebody. Did can you tell us? Do you want to tell us something more about? Sure. Uh, yeah. Let's see. I don't know. Long bios are weird, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> having people sort of read your life back to you every time you get introduced. Uh, so I, I have a PhD in sociology and and um, really was drawn to applied sociology, which is a part of the field that takes the lessons that we've learned from lots of really great academic research over the years and tries to get them out of the academy and into people's hands that can actually use them. And so for me, that meant um, about 15 years as a, as a, uh, as a professor, and, but, but really with trying to speak to an audience, you know, when I wasn't teaching classes, my research was really focused on speaking to an audience out, outside, of, um, outside of the academy. And so through the lens of sociology of religion, trying to understand and help people you know, really understand what's going on with religion in, in, in America, especially um, what innovation looks like in those spaces, what even like the capacity is for new organizational forms and what the sort of social dynamics are that impact religious spaces. And so wrap all that up and uh, just concluded some my time as a professor in May and uh, moved over to this uh, research institute called Springtide Research Institute. And, and we focus solely on 13 to 25 year olds. So our whole the whole thing for us is trying to figure out where young people make meaning, where they're having conversations about life's biggest questions and who's there with them, who's guiding them, what thoughts and ideas do they have about this and, and you know, how can we bring that out and help, as we say, help the people who care about young people to care better. Well, I appreciate all of that. And we'll include in the program notes uh, links to Springtide and, and your work so that folks can uh, seek that out. But I just wanted to give you an opportunity to share a little bit more about that background that you're doing. Now, we're going to spend most of our time today talking about your current research uh, in that demographic, but I wanted to begin with a question uh, uh, about the Duns, a group sure. that uh, many evangelicals probably aren't uh, very much aware of. Um, I came across um, a material on, your, on a website that says, how religion drives people away from church, but not from God. And I think that's a fascinating idea. In fact, I think we could even change that to say how church many times drives people away from church, but not from God. Um, and you wrote a book, Church Refugees, Sociologists Reveal Why People Are Done With Church, But Not With Their Faith. Uh, now, for evangelicals and other Christians who uh, aren't aware of it or who may be tempted to, to be dismissive, these are just uh, folks who, who couldn't make it. Uh, they just wanted to follow their sin, this kind of thing. What kind of People are we talking about with the Duns? Sure, good question. Well, I mean, first of all, you, you say that people aren't familiar with this, but like we wrote a book. Everybody right, wrote well, a I know. Book, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we'd, we'd intentionally use that term uh, on the website about religion as opposed to church because we see this as a real social dynamic of a movement away from institutions generally. So while the book is, and that data, the data that's in Church Refugees is um, all comes from Protestant. Uh, Christians, there's no particular reason to think that this is uh, just confined to to that sector of of the religious you know sort of universe or sphere. Uh, what we find though is is that uh, the Duns are make make up this really unique category. I, mean, I, I expected to find many of what, much of what you just 
alluded to, which is I thought we were going to interview a whole bunch of people who, um, you know, just couldn't, they really just wanted permission, you know, to do whatever it was that they were inclined to do. And, they, you know, church was challenging them, religious teachings were challenging them to, you know, not do some things, to be compliant with other things, et cetera. And, you know, they were just being selfish and wanted to move out. And I thought, well, it's still worth exploring because nobody else has. Um, right. And we were stunned to learn that that's not at all the case. What we found time and time again over the course of what ended up being like 130 interviews, um, you know, hour long plus interviews of people is that the, the institutional structures and organizational dynamics that I think served the church really well for, you know, maybe a century or so, maybe 50, 60, 70 years or more, are just really, they don't fit in a modern world in a modern context as well as they once did. And so the Duns increasingly are this group of people that um, really high performing, really dedicated, really, you know, uh, devoted to their faith and to doing what they feel to be God's work out in the world. And then the church was just getting in the way of them doing it. And so they would go from church to church to church. Uh, and then, and then ultimately, decide that it wasn't them that was the problem, it was the structure that was the problem. And so then, then they would leave, but but keep their faith intact. And sometimes they would leave, you know, they would tell us that they left so they could keep their faith intact. Haven't you said somewhere that the, these, uh, these are some of the best and brightest many times in the church? Yeah, I mean, you know, congregations a lot of times, especially as, as memberships and budgets decline, increasingly become reliant on volunteers and, and lay workers to do a lot of the, um, Put in a lot of the sweat equity you know sometimes you know everything from teaching sunday school to cleaning the buildings to prepping before and after worship and leading fundraisers um so when those people get frustrated and leave the consequences are different than somebody who's sort of sitting in the back of the i mean the consequences for your organization i don't mean the consequences for um what you know what evangelicals might call kingdom work i mean every person matters but the consequences on your organization when these really devoted and talented people walk out are significant. Um, it's, it, it, it has a trickle, I don't wanna say trickle down effect, but like a trickle across effect. You, you end up, the, the small and dwindling paid staff ends up having to do more and getting burned out quicker. Um, the people that provide a lot of the sort of vibrancy in life to a congregation that are always the ones organizing the potlucks or the ones you can absolutely count on to show up for the trash cleanup around the neighborhood and, you know, all the things like, you know, the, it's, it's amazing how really tenuous communities are. We, even when we think that they're really flourishing, sociologically, we understand that these can often be boiled down to like, you know, a, a community of 100 or 150 can be boiled down to like five or six or seven key points in that sort of network diagram. When you lose two or three of those, you know, things start to get on shaky ground real fast. Mm -hmm. Well, I would encourage uh, folks to pursue that topic more, particularly, uh, I just think pastors need to be aware of what's going on with various demographics in their congregation. And as somebody in uh, evangelical leadership, I must admit I'm, I'm extremely sympathetic to uh, the Duns. Sometimes I, I think my work is more appreciated outside of the walls of the church than within it. So it's a, a significant topic. But, but we'll shift gears to your current research. You mentioned, oh, go ahead. I'll tell you that we yeah. do. Um, I was really pleased to be able to, as my time in academia was winding down, got to finish out one last project with a co-author. His name is Todd Ferguson. And as we were doing the research for church refugees, uh, Ashley and I found just a whole bunch of people emailing us that were pastors saying, I'm done and I'm a pastor. <laughs> like we mm. were like, we don't know what to do with this. We can't <laughs> include them, you know, in the regular sample because it would skew the data too much. So we set them aside and then Todd and I ended up writing a whole book 
just about pastors who are done. It's called um, Stuck, and it'll come out on Fortress Press this spring. So oh, there's wow. you know, like a one more sort of follow up, and you'll be hearing if you follow if you follow me on Twitter mm-hmm. at Dr. Josh Packard uh, or look for Todd Ferguson, you'll see you'll see a lot more about it coming out in the spring. Now, where where are these former pastors going? Can you give us a little hint? Oh, from the- yeah, well, uh, stunningly, they're not all former pastors. Right? Oh, okay. I mean, part wow. of the story is that a lot of them are still in the you know they're you know, in some cases, they're like five years away from retirement, they don't really feel called to be a pastor anymore. But they uh, feel like they owe it to their families to be able to, you know, financially, you know, put kids through college and and pay for retirement and stuff. And and they know they're reasonably good at the job. So they keep doing it. Um, In some cases, they just they've left the pulpit, and they're trying to find anything. I mean, part of it is the story about um, how we do credentialing and training in, in the American church. And, you know, you get a degree, you get a master's degree that takes three years that isn't really transferable. And that's problematic. And pastors have a lot of time to often translating the really significant leadership work that they've done inside of congregations outside of congregational life in a way that will matter to um, somebody who's making a hiring decision at a manager level um, or higher. And, and so a lot of them are struggling, looking for jobs. Some of them have made transitions, but it's really all over the place. Um, it's a, um, one of the beautiful things about the, the analysis is that Todd, is, in addition to having a PhD in sociology from Baylor, has an MDiv from Duke and was a pastor for a while and mm. really brings a, a pastor's heart to understanding um, this group of people. And, and so the writing um, and analysis really flourishes because of that. So I, I was like, you know, I collected the data and then Todd was doing the writing and I was like, fa- I was like reading every page, like learning stuff myself. Um, so I think people will find, uh, ho- you know, hopefully congregations will understand their pastors a little bit better and what they might be going through. Yeah. Fascinating. I look forward to seeing that. Hopefully folks that read it can, if they're stuck, they can become unstuck or or realize they've got some other, other opportunities and places to go. Let's talk about your current research that you've been doing for a number of years. And you mentioned at the top of our conversation, uh, a particular uh, demographic. Um, Why are you focusing on those folks? Can you help unpack that demographic a little bit more? And where are they coming from in terms of religion and spirituality? So it's the demographic that's, uh, for now, known as Gen Z. Um, So it's 13 to 25-year-olds. For Springtide, we'll always stay with that focus. So as Gen Z ages, we're going to stay focused right on 13 to 25. You know, whatever the next generation is, alpha, I think is what some people are calling it. And we, you know, most research institutes go down to 18. Um, we, it's, we, we think it's worth the extra time and resource expenditure to go down to 13. It is trickier to get that, um, to close that five-year gap. But 13 is really at the age, you know, for a lot of religious systems, it's the age of where rites of passage take place, confirmations, bar mitzvahs, et cetera. Um, it's also the age at which young people really start sort of getting a chance to make their own choices in many cases. Um, and, and maybe some of those choices aren't necessarily about, you know, what my entire family is going to do in terms of religion, but choices about what they themselves are going to start to believe. Um, and then on the, on the upside, on the upper end of that age bracket at 25, it's as startling as this might be to some of the people listening, 25 is actually the age now at which uh, social scientists say, okay, this is the age of adulthood. By 25, we find that we've got over half of young people who are um, living more or less on their own. <laughs> like, you know, maybe cell phone bills are still being covered, but we tip that 50% mark that, uh, at least pre-pandemic anyway, um, of young people living outside of the house. And um, 
and finishing up any sort of post uh, uh, high school education that they've that they've done. So that's the reason for the focus. And we're not asking the same questions to 14 year olds that we are to 24 year olds. Um, we're, we're certainly nuancing those, but our concern really is that of that in that age group, it's something like 40 to 42, 43% um, of those young people have no religious uh, identification whatsoever. They fall into the nuns category. And what we kept seeing out in the, out in the field was um, a whole bunch of information about you know, religion and, and even some information about religion and young people that was coming through a pretty narrow ideological lens. Either it was coming like from Baptists for Baptists about Baptists or from Catholics for Catholics about Catholics. And that information was great, but when 40% of young people are not Baptist or Catholic or Hindu or Buddhist or Muslim, right? We need to understand the soul work that they are doing too. And somebody really needs to be paying attention to that. And I don't mean paying attention to it in the way that like Pew is paying attention to it and documenting it. And we certainly think that our, you know, our data collection is nationally representative. It's rigorous. You know, we, we care about the rigor just like Pew does, but we mean care about it in the way that we actually like are trying to show up for young people every day. What can we do about that? What, what is a, what does an unaffiliated young person need from a trusted adult in their religious exploration? Um, what does that look like? Who are they turning to? And so that's really the, those are the concerns that animate Spring Tide and, and sort of bring us to life because the reality is you're far more complex than what I think most people would be sort of led to believe if all you were doing is reading Pew and Gallup statistics. Just because 40 some percent of young people are unaffiliated does not mean that they don't care about God. They are very, very interested. Um, and so we got to figure out a way outside of institutions to engage them in those conversations. Well, how does the, the spiritual quest uh, and experience and desires and things of this demographic, how does it differ from e even the, the past generation? Well, so we, for about 60 or so years, uh, we've been undergoing this massive social transformation in America. And it's, it's one that most people sort of feel, but are probably don't have language for because you know, unless they're sociologists, they're probably not thinking about this stuff in a grand way all the time. And that transformation is really around institutional trust. And so that's the context within which young people especially are living their lives, which is this sort of drop off uh, precipitously in terms of how much we trust public education, how much we trust politicians, how much we trust banks and big businesses and the medical system and religion. And uh, trust rates for those things are not only really, really low, but they've been on the decline now for, like I said, half a century. Um, now, what makes, the, so that's been going on. Um, what makes this generation different to get to the point of the question you asked is that for the first time now, we've got a generation of young people being raised by parents who don't trust those institutions. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, where a lot of church leaders will ask me, like, how do we get young people back to church? I'm like, you need to reframe that question. That's a 2005 question. The 2025 question is how do you get young people to church? They're not, they're not going to come back. They never left. Them. They weren't <laughs> right. there in the first place, you know, and, yeah. and that's really a significant shift. Um, mm. You know, even the last time that I taught my sociology or religion class, there were terms that I used to be able to say uh, and use in the course of my class the first time I taught it in 2006 um, that I could just assume that everybody understood whether they were religious or not they they understood broadly like the concept of sacraments or communion or what a congregation was even and by the time I taught it the last time just about a year and a half ago you know that was just you couldn't assume those things anymore um, it you know e even something really basic like you know uh, 
the Abrahamic faiths all you know are, are pointing to the same God and come out of the same tradition. That is that is news, you know, to your average eighteen to twenty-two year old. Um, so this is a it's a it's a it is a distinct difference. We we've crossed a point where not only are young people living in a world of massive distrust of social institutions, but that sense of distrust is not coming from a personal failing that they've experienced. It's coming because they're being raised by parents who are opting out of those things from the beginning. What are some of the the elements that make up the bigger cultural milieu that is helping to to shape this quest? I, I mean, you mentioned distrust. Um, I think most churches, most pastors are, are concerned about theology and worldview. If we just tell them why Jesus died and, uh, you know, give them a, a flashy worship service or something that's relevant, whatever that means, but that's kind of the prescription. But it seems like there's a disconnect between what's going on culturally, sociologically, and so on. What broader currents in the culture should we be aware of? This is what, so every fall we come out with a state of religion and young people, um, it's sort of a, a pulse check on where young people are that that year for with with their faith lives. In fact, as we record this today, that's October twelfth. Our state of religion, young people, twenty twenty one, will come out here in the next few days. Um, and these are the these are the exact things that we explore because trying to understand the context, the sort of water that they're swimming in, is critical. Um, it helps it helps to explain why just getting better about your messaging and clearer about your theology with young people isn't enough. So for example, when you grow up in a world full of institutional distrust where that message is being reinforced at every turn, the first thing you need to do is some trust building work, not some messaging work. Um, as we were, the data are pretty clear about this from uh, State of Religion and Young People last year, where we put forth this model of relational authority that you know, if you lead with your expertise, you know, in whatever way that is, either because you're so smart or because you have this title or because you have this institutional backing, if you lead with your expertise in a conversation with young people, they're going to shut you down immediately. It doesn't matter how right you are. So what they, what happens is that they assume that when you're coming from a place of institutional expertise and institutions can't be trusted, mm. thus nothing that you say can be trusted. Do you know, you know what I mean? Um, right. So that becomes this, uh, this that points a, a way for the you know a way forward for how we need to be engaging with young people relationally by you know listening and integrity and transparency and care these are the other four dimensions of relational authority um, and then once we do those things then we get a chance to share our expertise but when we come into this like you know which this is a really hard pill for me to swallow as a professor I want to stand up in front of a room and like you know tell tell my students like this is the way things are I, you know I've studied this a lot I know a lot about this here's what you need to know and have them get excited and care about it just because I'm saying it, but that's just, it, it, they're, they're just not going to. Until we, you know, it, it, the old saying has never been more true that they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Well, I, as I looked at some of what you've been uh, releasing uh, on Twitter and Facebook and these kinds of things lately, one of the things that just jumped out at me was this notion of faith unbundled. And I think it represents one of the greatest challenges for churches um, that I'll comment on after you describe what, what exactly is faith unbundled. So yeah, great. So faith unbundled is the uh, that's the concept that we're exploring in this year's state of religion and young people, and uh, it really emerged from this trying to understand the journey that young people are on as they what tools are they using to help navigate all of this uncertainty that is normal in a young person's life and now really heightened by the fact that you know 
COVID is such a defining experience for them. And you're trying to figure out their way through an uncertain life without institutional connections and guides. They're cobbling together these different tools from different experts and sources and faith traditions. And um, I think, you know, so Faith Unbundled, which, you know, has as some of its key hallmarks, like connection, curiosity, exploration, as, as sort of paramount virtues to that system. Uh, the best way that I've, I was, I've, I've thought of, like the metaphor that I use to think about it is that, you know, there's one version of faith transmission where it's like you sit down at a restaurant and a waiter brings you food and you can either choose to eat it or not eat it. That, that's your only point of agency is you can either eat or not eat. Um, and, and this is what I think faith looked like maybe for a lot of adults today when they were kids, their parents told them this is the way to, it wasn't like you could have this or something else. It's like, this is it. Right. Um, and then maybe there's this like messy middle ground where it looks more like you're ordering off of a menu where it's like, oh, I've been exposed to some other religious systems within my tradition, or maybe some other traditions altogether. And I get to sort of pick, like I'm ordering off of a menu, like I can either be Jewish or Buddhist or Christian, right? Well, the best way to understand what young people are doing today is that it's more like a dinner party, like a potluck dinner party. They're showing up with other young people. They're exploring, they're taste testing, they're putting things together in weird companies. Like if you've ever been to a potluck, you know, it's like the only place where you ever have like potato salad, you know, <laughs> you know, and, and like, uh, you know, a, a piece of steak and some shrimp. You right. know what I mean? Like right. all, you end up with this plate of everything that looks really interesting, but you wouldn't necessarily put them all together, but like, let's give it a try. Yeah. Um, and also you're doing that in connection and community. So you get to hear all the stories about like why this person makes potato salad this way. And you know, what, what's so important about this dish to my family, et cetera. And those become really rich and meaningful experiences. I think it's terrifying if you're a religious leader, unless, unless you remember what it's like to be young. And if you remember what it's like to be young, you know that the person that you were dating at 15 is not likely the person that you ended up marrying. The faith that you had when you were 17 is probably not the faith you ended up with at 27 or 37. Um, you know, it, the major that you went into college with is probably not the major that you graduated with. So while I have some personal concerns about young people sort of um, taking these very intact and rich religious traditions and, and sort of, you know, <laughs> ripping them apart and assembling them back together again, then I remember like, oh, wait, like they're just exploring. They're trying to figure this out. And, and we can be there to help them do that, to guide them and walk alongside them without fear that, you know, we have to correct every single thing because the nature of being young is you're exploring, you're experimenting and trying new things. And, you know, maybe we don't have to correct every single thing that we see to conform with the way that we understand the world. So that's Faith Unbundled in a nutshell. Well, uh, one of the reasons why I think this is so threatening for religious leaders, particularly Protestant, conservative Christian leaders, is because, as you know, um, the, there's great emphasis on belief, on orthodoxy, right belief, and they tend to follow this kind of bounded set mentality. You've got the insiders who have the, the right doctrine, and then you've got the outsiders who have it wrong. And they find this exploration, this journey process, very threatening. If you're going to come in, if you're going to be a part, then you, you got to, this is what you have to believe. You have to believe A, B, C, and D. And if you're adding something else, then it's problematic. How can we help religious leaders 
I don't know if relax is the right term, but be more comfortable with allowing young people to take the journey, even if it goes in places that, that we may not agree with and that make us uncomfortable as we come alongside them in the spiritual journey. I think this is, you're absolutely right, John. Like I, this is exactly the concern that I hear all the time. And I really, really don't understand it. I mean, I, it's a, like, I, I understand it intellectually, like when somebody says it to me, um, but Christianity has this really amazing element of the Holy Spirit. And so like the need for Christian leaders to try and control every aspect when a core part of their belief system is that there's somebody in control of the uncontrollable or there's some, not somebody, something in control of the uncontrollable. Like I have such a hard time reconciling that, you know, the tighter you squeeze and hold on to it. I just keep like trying to look in between the fingers and the grip to figure out like, where's the Holy Spirit in that? Like I, where's the space even for that to happen? And it, so it's, you have the answers, I think, right inside of this religious tradition that has this really lovely um, uh, entity, this thing that takes care of that stuff. I understand people interpret that in, in, you know, and what the role of the Holy Spirit is in the presence of it in, in lots of different ways, but, but it always strikes me as very odd. So that's the first thing I would say, um, like leave room for the Holy Spirit to do what is the Holy Spirit's to do and, you know, understand that your job isn't to do everything. I think, I mean, again, I'm not, I, I don't want to stray too far out of our lane of social science and into the lane of sure, theology. But, sure. um, the second thing is, and this is speaking much more from a data and science driven perspective is that, you know, I, I worked at camps. I've, I've had, I've led young people through mountaintop experiences and encounters with the divine. And uh, I did that when I was younger. I, I've seen, I've seen what it can look like to get a commitment from a young person to a, to a belief system. And I've seen what happens three months later. And, and the nature of those things, and because of the, you know, the biology, the neurology of young people, um, they, they are inclined to see the world in black and white. They don't deal with cognitive dissonance better. I mean, these are all things that happen as your brain matures and gets older. So they, you know, it, it's, it's easier to get that sort of like proclamation of faith from a young person. And it helps us to go to bed at night feeling good about the work that we've done when we can say like, oh yeah, I brought, you know, five young people to faith today. And like, okay, done with those five, like, you know, they, they've submitted their commitment and we can move on to five more. It's like we put five in the win column and you get to put your head on the pillow and feel pretty good about yourself. The reality is, and we know this from the data, we know this from lots of studies, it's like that's just not a durable, long-lasting sense of faith. And if it is, it's not because of that thing that you did with them in that exact moment. If it ends up being durable and long-lasting, um, it's because of the community that they're embedded in. It's because they have a sense of belonging. Uh, one of the things we write about this in belonging, um, one of the oldest lessons from sociology is for, for any group, faith groups included, belonging comes before belief. And you can get these short-term wins with, with belief, but if you're not doing the, the community work, the accompaniment work, to use a Catholic term, um, the connection work, creating that sense of belonging to a larger tradition and a larger group, then the chances that that, that mountaintop experience that come to faith moment is gonna last are just exceedingly low. So it's, it's, I think it's, a, you know, how do we get more comfortable with that? Well, first of all, it's, a, it's, it's like, let's reframe into an accurate understanding of what, what is actually happening when a young person has a moment like that where they make a commitment. What, is, what we often think is happening is that we put one in the win column. What is actually happening is that they've taken a step. That is part of their journey too. We are kidding ourselves if we think that their journey ends there. It does not. 
Um, secondly, then I think we've got resources and tools in our faith traditions to to be okay. You know, understanding that there's going to be some change and fluctuation there, and we can come alongside and and you know, as I say, like the trick here is not to convince them to give them an ultimatum that they'll say yes or no to that makes us feel better. The trick is to stay in the conversation with young people for as long as they'll let us be there. That's that's how you create a sense of belonging, undo this institutional distrust, um, and really move the needle when it comes to young people's faith. Well, we've talked about the data and trying to unpack that um, to try and humanize it a little bit. Can you share a story or two about what uh, uh, the spiritual journey of a young person looks like today? That yeah, these are uh, so we uh, we have this internal saying at Springtide that we don't want to be a bunch of old people studying young people. Um, <laughs> so you know that we there's not much we can do about our side of that. Uh, we keep getting older. Um, but but one of the things we have a number of things in that we do to make sure that young people's voices are informing our work, that we're listening, um, that we're sort of uh, not fact checking, but interpretation checking with them of like, okay, this is the data. Here's how we understand it. Is that how y'all understand it? Um, and one of those is this young person's advisory board that we meet with. Uh, we call it the, our Springtide Ambassadors Program. We meet with them every month. Um, in fact, we get to meet again on, on Thursday night, uh, a couple of days from now, which I'm excited about. And it is fascinating. I mean, it's a real, it's a diverse group of young people who um, sit down with us for an hour and a half every month. Sometimes we give them data points. Sometimes we're just having conversation. There's always a, you know, there's always an agenda spelled out ahead of time. So it's not unfocused conversation, but to listen to them talk about, um, you know, the, like, I, I think of, I think of the story that, we just heard a month or two ago, I can't remember exactly what it was, from a young person who told us that we're talking about the importance of presence and how, how important it is to really know and understand where somebody is from. Um, and he said, how on, you know, like one of my friends died in a, in a drive-by shooting and another one of my friends um, died in gang activity of a different kind. And I went to my priest and they told me to pray about it. Like, but that my priest doesn't know my neighborhood. He doesn't know what kinds of things. Like, what is you know? He's like, what is prayer going to do for that? He's like, I'm not saying it's not part of the answer, but like, you know, we need we need more or different than that. We need an understanding of like what somebody's really going through. Um, and so this really put him into this place of like, uh, well, there must be other resources out there besides my priest, and, and they have access to them. We all have access to them. It's called the internet. And so then he starts digging in online, looking at looking at other um, support groups. People have been through things similar to him. Going, you know, looking looking for conversations that are happening around hashtags on TikTok and Twitter, um, and really finding a community of people who are trying to make sense of where God is in the midst of those things. And it, and it's actually able to then drill down into like places online of people who are dealing with what he's dealt with from similar neighborhoods, if not the same neighborhood. So where his congregation wasn't able to do that turning to social media he's able to find it that's fascinating mm. right like that is absolutely stunning you know so ultimately this leads him down a path of, of belief that he's still trying to reconcile um try, trying to understand and unpack but here's the thing like we're always doing faith exploration with guides the question is who are those guides and when young people were really connected to institutions i think we knew who those guides were um, you know, they were youth leaders, they were campus ministers, they were pastors, imams, rabbis, like all the people that were designated to do this kind of work. 
um, maybe sometimes families. Uh, but now, now when they're not connected to institutions, they're still looking for guides and who knows? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like who knows who those guides are? So what, what they said, what the young people in that conversation said is like, yeah, when adults dismiss what's going on for us, you know, on, on social media and on the internet, like it sort of disqualifies them from the conversation in our lives because we're, yes, a lot of what we're going there for is like silly dances and great music and all kinds of art and like conversations with each other, but also we're doing this other work there too. Um, and it has a tremendous faith impact. And so you can sort of see this sense of faith unbundled even emerging in that one story where, you know, there's a disruptive event that calls into question this taken for granted system that he had been given. And, you know, what he doesn't feel like the institution has even an understanding of who he is and can't be trusted to give him the right kind of advice. He starts looking to all kinds of other places to figure that out and is in the process of figuring that out. So I think that's a pretty, you know, that, that's a pretty typical, not, not everything is disruptive as a drive-by shooting or somebody dying in gang activity. I mean, so, sometimes this, those disruption stories can be just questions, you know, it, you know, some of the age old questions about God, if he's all powerful and all good, how come X happens, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and, and like institutions need to be better equipped to be in those exploration moments with young people. Well, it sounds to me in uh, listening to some of the data and where this demographic is at, that one of the more challenging jobs in the church is the contemporary youth minister. Um, but I also fear that the, exp the job description that churches might have in mind is going to be fairly traditional. Yeah. And yet there's a whole new skill set and knowledge base that youth ministers and those who work with this demographic are going to need to grapple with. What, what suggestions would you have? What resources would you recommend for people who are, who are in stuck in this liminal space in the expectation of the church, and yet young people are coming at it from a very different perspective? If there's going to be any meaningful way of bringing uh, the contemporary youth minister alongside so that they can really minister and listen to and empathize with young people. Well, yeah, I mean, so I'll point to some of our own stuff. You know, we've sure. got this guide called The New Normal, which is um, these exercises and empathy to help adults understand what's going on with young people. It's a free download. So, we're, you know, I'm pitching our own stuff, but it's, you don't have to pay for it. Um, <laughs> the, uh, you can go and sort of put yourself back in the headspace of young people as they come out of hopefully the pandemic and start to make sense of the world that is happening to them. Um, we've also got a curriculum coming out about create, how to create belonging in your organization. But look, we've been collecting a lot of um, stories about what's working, because there's a lot of stuff that's actually working um, in various ministry settings to engage with young people. And regardless of the specifics, and we'll be trying to dig into this more in the coming years, but regardless of the specifics, they have some common things in mind, in, in, uh, in, uh, they have some things in common rather. They are smaller, they are more relational, they are peer-driven, but institutionally supported. Um, and they're incredibly diverse and intersectional. And it's, these are models that rely on the natural intersections that you already have with young people. This is almost all sort of in opposite to the big program party driven model that we've largely experienced in the Christian church here over the last 30 or 40 years. This notion of like, we're gonna throw the biggest party we possibly can, we're gonna invite you to it and we're gonna get to know you and you know, foster a relationship there with you and for you, even before COVID, where large, you know, large gatherings obviously are now a very fraught place. Um, 
we saw this, you know, social anxiety and, and other kinds of things leading us down this path where large gatherings and parties were not necessarily fun places for young people to be, you know, that, that was happening um, well before the pandemic. The, when, the, the things that we write about at Springtide are often really affirming for youth ministers um, and really challenging to people in positions of leadership. As youth ministers say, this is like ammunition to be able to take back to their bosses because they know this is the work that needs to be done. Like this is the relationship-based as opposed to the program-based, the smaller, um, the more intentional, like they just need justification for doing that work, which is already where they see the most progress. And so um, I think that's, you know, a, a lot of what we're seeing in the data already resonates with the experiences of campus ministers and youth ministers, et cetera. But you're right. Much of what they're being asked to account for is based on these old models. And that's where things have to shift. We have to be just as innovative about relationships as we've been about programs for the last 30 years. And part of that means how we measure the impact of those relationships, the progress of those relationships, what are the goals of them? Um, and we can't do everything. You've got like leadership is going to have to let you let go of some stuff. You may, maybe you throw a big back to school bash every year that still attracts say 150 or 200 kids or more. Maybe you let go of that because it takes three months to plan and publicize and you know get together. And what's the opportunity cost of doing that kind of thing when you could be taking 75 different kids to coffee during that same amount of time? Uh, no youth minister I've ever met has free time. They're not, you know, none of them are not working hard enough. They're all, they're right. all giving it everything they've got. So when we come along with data and frameworks like this that call for a different way of doing things, it, it has to come at the stopping of other things. And I get that. And, and that, that, that change takes time, but we can only, you know, all we can do on our end is faithfully tell the story of where the data um, are leading us. And that pathway is towards relationships. Well, I'd like to be optimistic about this, but it is challenging. Are, are you seeing any churches reaching out to you saying, we're kind of getting a sense that there's something different and we don't understand the challenge. Can you come give us, can you enlighten us and educate us? Absolutely. I mean, okay. we're, um, no, I'm optimistic about this too, because I, we do, I've, um, I've done some, because of COVID and not having to travel, I think I've done like 54 speaking engagements over the last 18 months. Um, and a lot of those are in front of, people who are doing youth ministry like at a grassroots level, like congregational based youth ministry and to hear what they're doing and trying is really encouraging. Um, at Springtide, you know, our position, and we see this in the data that like young people who have well-considered religious lives are flourishing more than young people who don't have well-considered religious lives. And that, that's true even if that consideration at this, at the moment of taking our survey leads them to say like, yes, I've thought a lot about it and I don't want to affiliate with a religious entity. It's not the outcome. It's not the affiliation or the lack of affiliation that leads to their flourishing. It's the process of thinking about it and exploring it with a trusted adult. That's the thing that matters. And that's what we care about at Springtide is connecting young people who have really deep questions with adults who really, really care about them. And you know, I'm really encouraged by how much of that I see on a really like a weekly basis. Is there anything I've missed, Josh, that you'd like to, to say as we uh, bring this conversation to a close? Anything you'd like to say to the audience? We got conservative Christians, uh, yeah. particularly evangelicals. And what we try and do here at Multifaith Matters at this podcast is model respectful conversations through difference and also make them aware of trends in, in religion that they need to be aware of and what's going on. Anything I've missed that you'd like to bring out? Well, I'll just say in closing, you know, that it's uh, certainly young people have um, 
may, potentially, especially across the country, as we look, you know, widely, they have a, a dizzying array of very diverse values and concerns, some of which may or may not line up with yours. But one of the things I've been really encouraged by, not just in the surveys, but in the interviews, we've done hundreds of interviews with young people, is that they're not asking you to compromise your values. They're willing to be in conversation with people that they fundamentally disagree with on key issues. And uh, I think that's a that's a really great place for starting a conversation. Um, now, whether the adults are willing to do that same thing with young people remains to be seen. Um, <laughs> But but I've been really heartened by that, that, that they're not like, oh, there's not, there hasn't been this like, okay, you have to agree to these eight things before we can even talk, you know, um, they're interested in the conversation, they'll chat. And we, oh, the other thing I'll say is we'd love to stay in touch. I'm on Twitter at Dr. Josh Packard and we're at Springtide at uh, springtideresearch.org. Well, again, we'll include that information in uh, the uh, podcast notes so folks can access that. And I must let you know that I pre-ordered my copy. Oh, uh, yeah, so I'm looking Thank forward you. to that. I looked at the PDF, but I've got to have the hard copy in the it's, library. Our designer does great work. It makes data really easy to read. So I'm excited to have the hard copy myself. Yeah, it looks great. It is uh, very readable. So uh, we'll, we'll include a link uh, so folks can uh, uh, pick up a copy of that as well. Um, again, my guest has been uh, Dr. Joshua Packard. Uh, he's the executive director of Springtide Research Institute. And I would encourage folks to seek out the uh, links in the podcast notes and follow him on Twitter. I think his research is uh, incredibly important for those who want to uh, understand and to interact with meaningfully with contemporary young people in their current spiritual search. My thanks to my guest and to my listeners and to those who are watching on video until the next episode of Multi-Faith Matters.